0: Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer R. Levin, and I'm a traumatic grief therapist and founder of Therapy Heals, where we help organizations and individuals prepare and heal from sudden or unexpected death. And in my podcast, Untethered, Healing the Pain from Sudden Death, I share resources and stories to help you go from the chaos of sudden or unexpected death to move towards healing in your life. Hi everyone, and welcome to Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. In today's podcast, I'm sharing a short presentation I delivered earlier this year followed by an interview with Rebecca Crichton, who is the Executive Director of the Northwest Center for Creative Aging. This event was part of their Seattle Town Hall series, Discussing the Undiscussables. And the topic of my presentation and our subsequent interview was presence within absence. And that's what we're going to talk about in today's podcast interview. Presence within absence is the ability to feel, connect, or communicate with your loved ones who have died as if they were still present. The interview I'm going to share with you also addresses how and why sudden and unexpected death is different from an expected or anticipated death and the concept of post-traumatic growth. So, greetings. I am so honored to be here today and to have an opportunity to be part of this lecture series, discussing the undiscussables. Um, I spend much of my time discussing the undiscussables in my career, and I find that when it's done correctly, there is such an opportunity for meaning and connection and healing, and I am so proud to be part of it. So, so that there we go. All right, so I'm going to spend the first part of my time with you tonight uh, providing you with an overview of some of the work that I do before I sit down with Rebecca and have a little bit more of an informal conversation. So before doing so, I want to provide you with a bit of a foundation on some of the topics that we are going to be discussing together. The first topic is presence within absence. And second, as Rebecca mentioned, most of my work is within sudden and unexpected death. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about sudden and unexpected death and why that type of loss is different from an anticipated death. And finally, I'm going to end tonight by telling you about post-traumatic growth, which is actually one of my favorite topics to talk about. So let's start off by talking about what is presence within absence. In its most basic form, presence within absence is the ability to feel, to connect, or communicate with the deceased, to feel their absence as though they were really present, really still with us, as if almost living. And it's natural to feel, to connect, or even talk with our loved ones after death. It can be healing, it can be stabilizing, and it can even help us transition after a loved one has died and is no longer living. Now, there are such a wide range of ways to experience presence within absence. For some people, they may experience signs from their loved ones after they've died, Other people may actually communicate or talk with loved ones. And some people just know or they feel that their loved ones are nearby after they've died. What's important to know is that these are all normative and natural experiences, and that when you experience presence and absence, it can bring so much comfort, meaning, and healing. Now, presence within absence is somewhat uh, common, or I should say similar, to the work that was done by uh, Dennis Krauss in 1996. And he has a model which he has called uh, continued bonds. And according to his model, healthy grieving happens when we have a relationship with our loved ones who have died. And a long time ago, we thought that after someone had died, healthy grieving was actually to let go of our relationship with individuals who we loved. But that's not so. Continuing bonds and continuing connection is actually a very healthy way to continue our grieving process. So let's talk a little bit about more about presence within absence. And I want to refer to uh, this book right here, which the next several slides come from. And it's called The Restorative Nature of Ongoing Connections with the Deceased, Exploring Presence Within Absence. And it's actually edited by Dr. Ted Ranierson and Laurie Burke. And the book contains much of their work, as long with invited authors that they had contribute to the book. I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Rynearson for about the last 18 months as I volunteer on one of his projects, and I'll get an opportunity to share with you more about that later this evening. But according to uh, Dr. Rynearson and Ms. Burke, over time there have been at least three healing figures that society has authorized to be caregivers of bereavement and grief. And tonight, I'm speaking to you from the perspective of the psychotherapist. And these caregivers are the shaman, the clergy, and the psychotherapist. Now, the shaman, the clergy, and the psychotherapist share in common the ability to bridge the relationship between the deceased and the survivor, and in their ability to facilitate healing in grief. In addition, All three relationships take place and have what is known as curative factors, and that is that they happen to uh, occur within an emotionally charged and confidential relationship. They occur within a healing setting. They take place within a conceptual scheme, and they involve a collaborative procedure. Now, the therapist relationship is unique because we use a collaborative procedure or process to focus on our client's narrative memory of their relationship with their loved one. And we don't necessarily rely on the supernatural or the supernatural that is used with the uh, clergy or the shaman. Now, when therapists, shamans, and clergy normalize the presence and the presence within absence, it dismisses the pathology of uh, communicating with loved ones after they have died. And it helps individuals who are grieving stabilize their identity, their self identity, after the death has occurred. So I want to talk with you a little bit about the third space. And the third space is actually a concept that was developed by Donald Winnicott. And Winnicott first identified this third space as a psychological third space in infant development. And this is an imaginary space that children Um, entered for imaginary play to process internal and external experiences where they developed some of their self-autonomy, their separateness, and to develop more of a stable identity as they were growing. Well, a similar place actually exists in grief, and this is where presence with an absence often occurs. So communicating with your loved one in the third space is normal, and many people enter the third space to maintain a private, imaginary relationship with their loved one who is no longer living. It also helps those who are grieving keep their inner and outer reality separate, yet it's very interrelated. Spending time in the third space helps with the adjustment of the death of a loved one. And many clients, or excuse me, many therapists will help their clients enter the third space with exercises such as empty chair conversations, writing, or imagery. The goal of spending time in the third space is to build a bond with your loved one who's no longer present and you can carry this bond with you further in life as you continue on and feeling the presence of your loved one who's no longer physically present. Now I want to talk with you a little bit about the neurobiology of presence within absence. Research findings have shown that there is a continued mental representation of our loved ones after death in the central nervous system that is roughly analogous to the phantom limb. And for those of you who don't know about the phantom limb experience, individuals who have had a limb amputated report pain and discomfort in a limb that is no longer present after it has been amputated. Well, this is very similar In grief, we feel the presence of our loved ones very, very often. And it's not just in one area of the brain. There's a connection between various centers deep in the brain. And the reason that I want to bring this up is that many people find it so comforting to know that there's something both physiologically and psychologically going on after a loved one has died. So let's talk a little bit about clinical interventions that have been used to facilitate presence within absence. Now I mentioned the work of Dr. Ted Rynearson and he has developed a technique called restorative retelling to help facilitate presence within absence. And much of his work centered around restorative retelling through sharing positive memories. Restorative retelling combines stabilization, relaxation training, and commemorates the life of a loved one who is no longer living. It reduces separation distress and promotes the establishment of a continuing bond. Now, restorative retelling is appropriate for both deaths that are anticipated or expected and both sudden and unexpected deaths as well. And as a matter of fact, Dr. Rynearson ran several groups where he studied the impact of restorative retelling among individuals who have experienced what he called violent deaths and he found that there was a reduction in traumatic distress, which was broken down to intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, and dreams of the dying, and separation distress, which was yearning, pining, and searching for the deceased in grief. This slide here shows you some of the techniques that I use when I work with clients to help facilitate presence within absence. I use very often uh, traditional, uh, excuse me, transitional objects. I encourage clients to carry things that belong to loved ones with them in order to help feel their presence. These may be a watch, a piece of jewelry, Um, uh, A token, something that their loved one loved. Carry it in their pocket, maybe in their purse. Something that they can hold to help feel close. I encourage clients to engage in rituals and traditions. Some of these may be related to holidays, some perhaps not. Wearing clothing, favorite articles um, of loved ones that bring them comfort volunteering at charities or organizations that were very meaningful to loved ones, communication with loved ones, having conversations, writing, and waiting to hear what their loved one would have responded back, um, to engage them in an actual dialogue. There's also lots of other ways to communicate with loved ones who are no longer living through art and music and, Just the ways of communication can be endless. Food, going to a loved one's favorite restaurant, eating their food, favorite foods, making their favorite foods. Engaging in activities that make loved ones feel present. Going on hikes, playing games, doing things as a family that loved ones uh, loved. And finally, engaging in legacy projects, continuing activities or events or projects that were very meaningful to loved ones who are no longer living. So I want to transition now to talk with you for a few moments about some of my work in Sudden and Unexpected Death. And before I do that, I want to talk about why Sudden and Unexpected Death is so different. Many people who have not experienced a sudden and unexpected loss don't really understand how these circumstances are so different and that they impact every single aspect of your life if you have experienced this type of loss. The next two slides are going to show how and why a sudden unexpected death is different. But before showing you that, I do want to say that how an individual responds to losing a loved one in a sudden and unexpected manner is going to depend on several different things. Number one, their relationship to their loved one who's died. Number two, the amount of trauma they've had in their past. Number three, their experiences with death. Number four, the amount of social support. Uh, also their coping mechanisms. So there's a lot of different factors that are going to influence the way an individual responds to a sudden and unexpected death. But it's so important to note that this type of death is so different. And when I say sudden and unexpected death, this can come from a health crisis, a suicide, a homicide, an accident, um, a natural disaster, um, a terrorist event, an act of war, a military um, exercise, there are so many different ways that sudden and unexpected deaths can occur. So I just want to uh, provide that overview before we look through these next slides. So sudden and unexpected death is very, very different. First, it's untimely, and it's without warning. It comes with no opportunity to say goodbye, no time to make any plans. Often, it's very violent in nature, There's damage and an intent to harm. This can be so painful for surviving loved ones. Third, it may have been preventable preventable in nature, and this leaves surviving loved ones questioning and wondering if things could have been different if only they also had done something different. Many times this brings up issues of blame, guilt, and regret. Also, survivors may have provided life-sustaining measures or made end-of-life care decisions for their loved one at the end of life, which can make it very difficult after the sudden or unexpected death has occurred. After a sudden and unexpected death, there can be overwhelming and dysregulated emotions that can make it very difficult for an individual to function. Also. The story of the dying can make it so that the individual's story of their life is temporarily overshadowed because so much attention is focused on how the individual died and not much attention temporarily is focused on who the individual was and how they lived their life. Importantly, the aftermath of the trauma often interferes with the grief. Depending on the circumstances, survivors or family members often experience trauma symptoms. And these symptoms need to be stabilized before the grief can even begun to be addressed. And finally, and although there may be many other things not mentioned here, a sudden and unexpected death is different because it shatters the assumptive world. And it leaves an individual with loss of control and safety. And if you're interested in learning more about the assumptive world, I highly recommend the work of Ronnie Bullman, who wrote about the theory of shattered assumptions. So the last thing I want to go over briefly before talking with Rebecca is post-traumatic growth. I'm often asked how I do work about set- with sudden and unexpected death and how I live in the life of the undiscussables and traumatic grief all of the time. Well, I happen to love my work and I'm very passionate about improving the lives of individuals who have experienced sudden and unexpected death. But I'm also a huge believer in the phenomenon of post-traumatic growth, and I'm very inspired and honored to have witnessed post-traumatic growth in many of the clients that I've worked with. And so let me take a moment and explain this phenomenon to you if you're unfamiliar with it. Post-traumatic growth um, is growth that an individual experiences after a trauma, and it doesn't have to be a sudden or unexpected death. It can be any type of trauma, that leaves them in a better space than they were prior to the trauma. The term post-traumatic growth was coined by doctors Callahan and Tedeschi, and they have identified five areas of growth that an individual can experience after a trauma. And these areas are new possibilities, closer relationships or increased connections, increased personal strength, a greater appreciation for life, a deepening of spiritual life, religious beliefs, and changes in one's belief systems. And so there are many people that I've worked with who feel that after a sudden and unexpected death, their lives are over or that they will never be whole again. But I have witnessed and seen so many people who have Grown in unbelievable ways. And I'll just briefly mention that there's been a lot of research that has looked at what factors can contribute to post-traumatic growth, and that's so beyond the scope of today. But I will just tell you a few, and that is um, sharing negative emotions, um, positive coping strategies, resiliency, And growth-promoting activities are just a few of the ways that individuals can increase the likelihood of experiencing post-traumatic growth. So I'm going to scoot over and spend some time with Rebecca, but um, I do have um, my website up and um, my email. If you have questions that we don't get to address today, uh, please feel free to reach out and um, contact me.
1: Thanks, Jennifer, that's terrific. So come, don't forget it, whatever it is. What a good ground setting for this whole topic, because when I first started being interested in this field, there wasn't a lot of talk at the time around trauma and around absence, with, absence within presence, or presence within absence, which is a much more, I think, um, something that's been explored more recently than it was back in, back in the day around grief, where it was just, it's been six months, now you're moving on, right? Right? It was six months, that's enough time. Anyway, so I'm curious, how, how did you get into this work? What, what led you to this?
0: I probably took the longest path possible. Um, it started back um, with just a general interest in aging. I was actually very inspired. I had a very active great-grandmother, and um, I was volunteering in a nursing home uh, for high- college applications, and I wanted to realize, I wanted to know why my great-grandmother was so active. And the people in the nursing home weren't. <laughs> this is a simple way of saying it. And um, so I started off with a general interest in aging, and um, I just took a very long path, but I learned so much along the way. Um, in over my experience I uh, I started off in public health, and I got my doctorate in public health, and I looked at communication between women with metastatic breast cancer and their oncologists, and um, kind of realized um, that I didn't want to be a researcher. Um, And I left with my tail between my legs. I was a little embarrassed because after doing all that research and preparing for a research degree, um, I left quietly. And so I directed a hospice. And um, then I went and um, decided I wanted to be a therapist. So I went back to school at night, and I worked um, for some other did some other part time things. So I went back to school, and um, but the I was just really attracted to end of life care, and uh, then. The sudden and unexpected death found me. I think I the clients just found me. And most of my clients have been in their 40s to 60s younger people and realizing that there just are not enough services and resources and then being really um, committed to wanting to develop more specific resources for um, for anyone who's experienced that. I started off with widows at 30 who have had, you know, here they thought they were launching and there was nothing. You know, you couldn't go to a spousal group with um, people who have been married for 50 years. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I have a close friend who um, went out for dinner with her husband, they went to theater together. They came home and as she said, there was a sound I never want to hear again, and he was on the floor, and 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 she did CPR, and and then he was gone, and so she went from being a very happily married person to a widow. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting to both support her and help her and watch the process. Three years out, she but she all of the things that you talk about were there, and it was interesting to watch how she navigated that. It's a a life process, obviously, and learning. Um, So I'm curious, your current work uh, in grief education, advanced planning uh, for sudden and unexpected death, given that it's sudden and unexpected, how do you prepare people for it?
0: So those are actually two different things. So let me break those out. So um, I am, um, well, okay, so two different things. So first, I'm kind of Pulling back a little bit in private practice, um, not taking new clients on right now, and um, I'm doing some grief education. Um, uh, this is this tomorrow, or will be actually today. It's two years in Washington for me today. I'm two years. Uh, I love Washington. I came from California, and I finally feel like I came home. And um, but I had to retake the licensing exam. And I took the licensing exam, and there were no questions in grief at all okay. Okay. Um, on the exam. There was one question to study for. And, um, and so I remember in school, we just had the littlest amount, and it was just all about Kubler-Ross, and Kubler-Ross did amazing things for bringing grief to the forefront, but there's so much more to grief than Kubler-Ross. but. Um, And so I have been doing so much training and teaching, and so now I'm starting a professional grief education program. And there are some amazing professional grief education programs for people who really want to specialize in that. But so now I am just doing professional grief education for people who just want to take a couple of classes and I'm going to hospices and nonprofits and doing things online if you just want a foundation course in grief and it's designed for therapists, health professionals, clergy, first responders, individuals who are working in the field and just want a foundation in grief and want a foundation in sudden and unexpected loss.
1: You know, I'm thinking I, uh, next door to me lived they just moved, lived two medical students. And I think the one I became close with, uh, she's now in her clinical years, and I said, "So, what kind of work have you had with grief?" She said, "Well, we had an hour's worth of training around grief and And I thought, "Well, there you are." yeah." Uh, the medical
0: community is not yes. knowledgeable or comfortable. Yes, and like I said, there are some amazing programs if you Absolutely. really want to specialize, yep. and and things that I've gone through. Yeah. But most people don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But that they don't have the proficiency, just if they're practicing clinicians. For grief is universal, so so I'm starting a grief education program so that's one thing I'm doing then the other thing is I've been providing crisis support now for about 10 years and I've been going into um, corporations and schools after a sudden and unexpected death after a suicide after an overdose after an accident um, a health crisis because um, and I love doing this because the corporations call who call me are invested in their employees They realize their employees need help. And so they're so invested. And I love working for these type of corporations and the schools. But they all say, and I go in and I help with processing, and I help the management plan and leadership, what needs to be done, how do we plan uh, to meet the needs. We do processing groups. We set up memorials um, um, in the corporation, the business, the school, all of that. But they all say the same thing oh my goodness, we weren't prepared for this. I wish we had something in place. So I have developed and I am launching, just launched a brand new program, um, advanced planning for sudden and unexpected death in the workplace and in the schools. And um, I have a whole set of resource sheets. I have a training manual. Um, I have videos to help people think ahead notification program, protocols, templates, um, a master plan of everything that needs to be done, um, and no one wants to think about this in advance, but it's not a matter of if. And I'm not trying to sell fear, but grief, it's in the workplace. And not only that, when this happens, what employers may not be realizing is if somebody dies, and even if they didn't, if it's a big corporation and they didn't know the person very well, they still hear about it and it triggers every past loss the individual has experienced. And so even if they didn't know John in HR, the employee knows all of their other family losses. And so it's triggering and it's bringing up previous grief. And so I'm working, you know, I'm working hard to educate people and I've got some wonderful people who are so supportive of this program and are working really hard to help me um, and provide introductions into different workplaces and different arenas um, and help me educate um, different businesses and corporations about why this is so important. But it's about Thank the wellness.
1: You. Well, you know, and it's interesting because there's so much more willingness to talk about end of life, death and dying, and, ha- and certainly in Washington, one of the states that we have m- so many more choices. Around end of life, and people are finally beginning to discuss. And this really is the category of the undiscussable things, which I think is just a fascinating area of interest. Uh, People need to talk about it, need to be able to understand it. And if it's never been allowed, then it's this like this secret thing, and it's not, it's not discussable. It's not mentioned, even. So it's like this big, you know, it's like you're walking around these yellow taped areas of our lives that are there all the time you know so
0: grief is still pretty taboo at work it yeah 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 like one of my trainings is on cultural competency in grief because every single culture has a different experience of grief and leadership and management needs basic knowledge of how different cultures um, practice their, their grief experiences.
1: Well, you know, I'm thinking about years that I've done grief groups where there's always a point, especially in a closed grief group, where after talking about the feelings and the stories and everything, it gets light by talking about the things that people said to them to theoretically help them that just cracked everybody up because yeah. it was so not helpful. Yeah. And so people have these, it's it's a little bit of competitiveness that I can't here's what that person said to me. And I can't believe they said that. And then we laugh because we know that people don't know how to talk about it, but they need to. Yeah. We all need to learn how to talk about this, right? Yeah. So, so I'm curious, say a little bit more. I I got interested in this because of Dr. Reneers' mm-hmm. book. So tell us about him a little bit. And, yes work you do with
0: him. Yes. It's been an amazing experience to volunteer in his program. So um, I volunteer on a program called the Grief Companioning Project, um, and there's flyers over there um, on the table, and um, it's a program in Sonomish County, and it is just what it sounds like. It's a companioning project. Um, There's no uh, fee for the program, and it's for individuals who've experienced a... um, sudden unexpected or violent Mm -hmm. death and they have an opportunity we do a couple of things um, to have a companion um, be with them to walk them through this process and so they can have an individual companion is it a trained a trained person who's with them? it's a volunteer as well and um, we do trainings for individuals to uh, teach them how to be a companion. So you can be a one-on-one companion. You can be a group leader, Um, and we do in-person. I just finished up uh, last week uh, uh, an online virtual. We just did our first set of grief groups uh, for people. And um, we have a training, uh, and then we do an annual conference. And so our next conference, it's on the flyer, um, is... Uh, I think it's, it's on there. I think it's November 3rd. And so we invite anyone to uh, attend the training. It's a one-day training about the companioning program and, and to get involved. And then um, the loss, unfortunately, has to happen in Sonomish County. Um, but um, that's how you qualify to uh, receive a companion. But um, I don't believe you have to live in Sonomish County. Um, I could be wrong. I'm sorry, Cindy, if I'm wrong. Um, (laughs) But the flyer is definitely there. And um, it's just a wonderful program. Um, Dr. Rainierson is um, very, very committed to providing services for people, uh, services free of charge. And he's the medical director for this program. And so we've been working on it. And so this will be our second conference that we're putting on. So, That's exciting, yeah. So, what are some of the takeaways you're
1: getting when you bring some of these ideas to places where they haven't been? It sounds like you've been very supported in corporate places. Where Where else are you? Who else is calling you and saying we need we need your help? So, uh, so this isn't the companioning
0: project. Just just m- your, just your work in and, and all the work in the training you're doing. The training, gosh, I've had calls from so many different places, um, camps. Um, I responded to a, a drowning at a camp, um, schools, residential care facilities. Uh, that was the first place um, where I've been, and I had one organization. I probably been to eight to ten of their homes, um, and uh, providing support for the caregivers when um, an individual with um, that they do caring for um, has died because they're like family members um i've gone to very very big name well known or corporate organizations um schools headmasters i did the covid deaths when principals have died uh students who've died has
1: has the pandemic changed much what 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 was how was the uh, how has covid affected your work
0: COVID affected my work and the grieving experience in general. Um, I, you know, grieving is never easy. uh, But grieving is such an isolated experience. It's such a universal experience. And yet it's so isolating. And so I hurt so bad for people who were grieving during COVID because talk about isolation. And so COVID changed grief in general with, you know, individuals not being able to COVID made Death traumatic, not being able to be with loved ones uh, while they were dying, Uh, not being able to bury loved ones right away. It changed funeral practices in general. Um, I now see celebrations of life or funerals so much more extended, Um, you know, no longer right afterwards, but so far out. Uh, It changed my practice um, in that I now live in Washington because I used to see everybody in the office. And I'm now pretty much remote Um, for 18 months, didn't go in the office. And then the majority of people didn't want to go back into the office. I've gone down to California many times to see clients. And then they'll say, "Um, could we just meet by video after all today? So I thought I would lose clients by going remote, then not at all.
1: No, I've heard that telehealth has really changed Change the whole doctor-therapist professional relationship Mm -hmm. around the needs we have. So Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. I think there's pros and cons. Yeah. Um, I mean, in one way, I've been with clients. uh, I have a client who experienced the death of a child, and I'm like, "Let's have the session in their room today. Show me their room. Show me everything about it. I could have never done that otherwise. That's, That's right. Yeah." I kind of like feel like we're doing it in a natural habitat yeah huh Um, and so there's positive things as long as you know how Um, and then there's other things that you know have been a little bit um, you know the energy in the rooms are are different but I do I've been I was doing groups prior to COVID online so um, there's not a lot of Sometimes it's harder to connect with other people who've experienced sudden and unexpected death. Mm -hmm. My traumatic grief group is all online. Wow. And so now I can bring people together. I wonder if you'd return just quickly, because I want to make sure people have
1: a chance to ask questions, but return a little bit to um, uh, presence with an absence, because that's showing up as a concept that, again, Mm hadn't heard much until recently about it. And your list of ways you help people do Mm -hmm. that, carrying talismans and all of that, is. uh, I wonder if there's one or two stories you could share. Yeah,
0: I have one client in particular who just made it her point. um, So the concept of presence within absence and continuing bonds, I find I do a lot of education about it. Um, People will come in and, like, ooh, I'm doing something weird. And I'm like, no, you're not. This is amazing. It's wonderful. But I had one client who I had to introduce the concept of you can have a relationship with your son. Um, I know she wouldn't mind me sharing her story. She's written a book about it and acknowledged our relationship in her book. Her son um, died in a car crash um, in his uh, mid-20s. And I said, you know, you could still have a relationship with her, your son, and she was like, "Mm mm-mm. And she talks now about the relationship openly that she has with her son. He was a musician, and um, she writes, she just began journaling, and she read every single grief book that there was, and she wrote about every dream that she had, and she wrote to him. I mean, she really, really, really invested in having a relationship with her son. And she asked other people to tell them stories and dreams and every holiday, every celebration, she just immersed herself in his music and pictures and memories and really, really wanted to stay connected. That was just so important to her and she would talk and would talk freely about the relationship she continues to have with her son, even though he's no longer living. Wonderful. So, yeah. Yeah. When clients are open or ready, I introduce the concepts of presence with an absence or continued bonds with their loved ones who are no longer living into our therapeutic work. I have witnessed the impact of this type of communication, relationship, or bond, and the impact it can have on healing, and how integrating the essence of a loved one can stabilize someone and help them move forward. If you would like more information after today's episode, in our Facebook group, talking about the podcast with Dr. Levin, we've included a link to the entire video from the presentation, which also has the audience and online viewers' questions and answers. There's also a reference to Dr. Rynearson's book that I referred to several times during the presentation and a link to the Northwest Center for Creative Aging, and they have so many other presentations on many interesting topics. Please stay tuned for the next podcast interview on August 2nd, which will feature Cindy and Merle Myers. They share what it was like for them as a couple when they started dating and then got married shortly after Cindy's husband, Dan, died unexpectedly. Thank you so much for joining today's episode of Untethered, Healing the Pain After a Sudden Death. To learn more about hope and guidance after sudden or unexpected death, please visit therapyheals.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter, Guidance and Grief at www.therapyheals.com. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For guidance and hope with unexpected or sudden death, Please visit my website www.therapyheals.com to learn more about the services we offer. If you would like to share your story on our podcast in service of helping others heal after a sudden or unexpected death, please email us at info@therapyheals.com.